0: Book of Second Timothy, Chapter Four, is um, a continuation of our, our series here uh, from Paul's letter to uh, his apprentice Timothy. Let me go ahead and read the text, and then uh, and then we'll pray and look to it. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. O Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things that you have revealed to us by the power of your word. Things that we cannot observe in nature, but things that are true eternally, (coughs) truly and spiritually. Will You teach us, Lord, and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a scene at the end of the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, J.R.R. Tolkien's classic story made into a movie. Or three movies, if you made it through all three movies, or long movies, or also relatively long books, you might remember a scene where Bilbo Baggins, the older hobbit, is with the elves and in sort of a Norwegian Ford kind of setting sails off into the into the distance. Symbolically leaving this life and, and moving off into the the new life. That scene of climbing aboard this old sailing ship, tall ship, is ingrained in my mind for some reason. It stood out in the book and then also stands out in the movies of finishing that race and then sailing off. It's a scene that is also played out in the Scriptures and in a moving story of Paul on his third and last missionary journey. He's returning back to Jerusalem and Paul is going to end up on trial and convicted in Jerusalem and shipped off to Rome where he now is writing these last words of his ministry. Paul, probably the most prolific of all the New Testament writers, writes this last letter. Probably his last letter that's at least recorded in Scripture as he's about to face this death himself. But before that, as he's sailing back to Jerusalem, he stops off to visit the elders in the city, or from the city of Ephesus. And I've always envisioned this scene of Paul meeting with the elders happening in Ephesus for some reason, but I I was wrong. And as I was studying for this sermon, I realized that Paul actually calls the elders from Ephesus and he calls on them to come and meet him at this other little uh, town, smaller town city called Miletus outside of Ephesus to not go back to Ephesus for some reason. And there you see Paul meeting with his elders who he spent three years with. Pouring his life into their lives and ministries, teaching them. And the last words of Acts chapter 20 that recount this talk about them all kneeling to pray and weeping because Paul is leaving them again, climbing aboard this ship and sailing off, ending their time together. And Paul and they all know that this is probably the last time that they'll see each other. The reason that I bring up this story is because this letter to Timothy at the end of his life isn't just the sentimental ramblings of an old person or even a relatively young person who knows he's facing death. it's a it's a story that shows how intimately entwined close Paul and his apprentice Timothy and these other elders that Paul was. Teaching, their, their lives have become more than just a job, a workplace, talking shop, but that they truly loved one another and worked together for the advancement of the gospel. The work of an evangelist, an evangelist, and Gileon, is somebody who tells good news. They're telling the good news that Jesus has come and conquered death in such a way that Paul could have a hope in this life that transcended whether he physically lived or died. And he can tell the same thing to his apprentice Timothy that yes, you will face suffering in this life. Yes, you will be challenged. Yes, you will be tempted to fall away, to be quiet, but continue in this work because there is something laid up for you that is greater than this life. This passage is oftentimes used in ordination services of young pastors because it is a charge to this other young pastor, Paul to the young pastor Timothy, one pastor to another. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the Logos. The firm word, as contrasted later on with myths in, at the end of verse 4. Preach the truth so that others will not be tempted to follow myths. Proclaim this story. This is the role that pastors are called to perform, to continue to preach the truth regardless of their life circumstances and surroundings. But each time that an ordination happens, at least in the Presbyterian Church in America, our denomination, there's not just this one charge to the pastor, but there are two charges. And so while this passage is primarily for those who are being called to the office of pastor, elder, in the church... It's helpful to be reminded like our ordination services remind us that there's a corresponding charge to the people who are in the church, who are hearing the teaching, who may be likely, likewise tempted to fall into the stories that are myths, the stories that sound like they have an element of truth That scratch our itching ears, that tell us what we want to hear, but that don't communicate truth. When faced with suffering, don't hold up under the weight. When faced with challenge, fall down. Paul has offered his life in the face of this type of suffering. He has come to his end. He has come to his departure. He is being poured out as a drink offering and he's encouraging his apprentice Timothy to do the same. And likewise, he's encouraging all those who call on the name of Christ and trust that His salvation is the only hope in this life and in the life to come. To endure suffering. To always be sober-minded. To do the work of an evangelist. And to fulfill your ministry. In fact, of all those four charges in verse Five only perhaps the third one, the work of an evangelist, is the one that might be somewhat less applicable to, in general to the congregation, to the people of God who are not called to be pastors. In fact, we're all called to be sober-minded. In other words, to be steadfast, to be sound in mind, to be able to... Stand under the pressure to not give ourselves to things that are numbing to the mind. It's interesting that what is one of the most pressing issues in our time and place now. It is the opioid academic. the growing dependence on opioids to numb the senses, to calm our anxieties. I know some of you have struggled with this in the past and have been addicted either to prescription medicines or even to narcotics that are uh, illegal. But it's not just in this way that we look to things to find... Palm and comfort in our lives. There are so many, so many pain and mind-numbing effects or, or solutions in our life around us that most of us grow just accustomed to living with. And when Paul calls us to be sober-minded, he's speaking to these very things, not just alcohol, not just uh, drugs, but also our inclinations to go to food and overeating to comfort things. Perhaps go to, on a shopping spree to run out to your favorite uh, place and neglect some other responsibilities that you've been called to. perhaps to look to various substances or even entertainments. I would say the addiction to ESPN is one of the most pressing issues in our day-to-day. And it's not just that. It's other forms of entertainment in film and music. Some people find it in various sexual expressions and even pornography. And the thing is that Paul doesn't say if you do these things, you cannot be in the kingdom of God. But he calls us to recognize those things as what they are. They are things that distract us from the truth. That lead us into an acceptance of myths. Untrue stories that help us to give explanation, meaning, and comfort in life. We enter into these places and then we create stories around them that justify that justify our actions but ultimately just as the drug addict eventually comes face to face with what the reality is that he's created all these other things as well, we have to come to face to face with the reality that these things distract us from the things that God has actually called us to. Our service in life. Our ministry in life. Not just those who are called to the office of pastor, but all of us who are called to particular things in this life. The things that God has given you to do, whether it's in your vocation or in your family, or in your community, or wherever you live, even the people you come across on the street, like the story that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan, the person who you just find hurting and suffering along the way. Those are the places where God is calling all of us to fulfill our service or our ministry. Same word, by the way. Ministry, when you read it, just think service. Don't think pastoral office when you see that word. It is the word from which we get the office of deacon or the concept of deacon. It sounds like it in the Greek. Those who serve physical needs oftentimes of people as well as those who are called to teach teach God's Word and serve the spiritual needs of the mind and understanding the spiritual significance of the physical work that we do because the physical work that we do is still a spiritual work. (laughs) To be sober-minded is to Recognize that we are called into these places. Just this week, I heard a man talk about his story of being a police officer who gradually, all, over time, became addicted first to alcohol and then to prescription pain medicine, opioids, and then eventually to heroin itself to the point where he was stealing heroin from evidence lockers in the police department and eventually was found out. He lost his job. He lost his family. I'm not betraying any confidence in telling you this story. He is now a counselor, counseling other police officers in this way. He suffered the consequences, but he's found hope and redemption in telling this story and helping others to see that those things that lead us off and that seem to offer a bit of relief from this life for a time, oftentimes have significant consequences. As for you, always be sober-minded. This is a significant charge. And it stands against the options and the solutions that the world offers for us. If you look around, what is celebrated in the Western culture that we live in? What is celebrated is achievement by hard work. Achievement by great intelligence. Achievement that oftentimes comes at a great sacrifice. Not just in the form of hard work and sweat and labor, but sacrifice of what we have been called to give to others the relationships that we've been called to been placed into, family and friends and community. We celebrate. We celebrate those great accomplishments that people have oftentimes not realizing even the great cost at which they come. And then we find ourselves in places of such great stress that we feel like we have no other solution but to find some type of relief in some kind of alcohol or pain-numbing solution. But you, Paul says, translated as for you at the beginning of verse 5. This is a phrase that he's been using throughout his letter. But you, he says, earlier in the letter, In chapter 2, verse 1, when he's talked about those who have left the faith and deserted people, he then tells Timothy, But you, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But you, he says later, chapter 3, verse 10, some have followed Janus and John Brace. Remember those magicians who were trying to lead others astray, creating myths? But you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. But you, he says later, chapter 3, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. But you... Jesus is saying to each of us, recognize the allure of what the world is promising you by this great achievement and the call of Christ to enter this life to seek to serve rather than to be served, to seek to make Jesus' name great and not to seek to make our own name great to be willing to endure suffering for the name of Christ not only that to endure suffering for the sake of others paul is enduring his suffering for the sake of his apprentices and all the people of ephesus whom he recognizes face incredible challenges and even when he met with the those elders in ephesus or in miletus who were from ephesus He warned them. He said, look, there are teachers among you who are like wolves. And they are in your presence. And they are trying to take away the seed that I have planted. Take away the truth. They are promising things that they cannot fulfill. And they are mixing together stories in a way that confuses the truth. Some of them mix together stories of Greek philosophy and the idea that the fulfillment in life, true fulfillment in life is when we escape the body. That the Spirit is the place that the true self resides and where corruption doesn't exist and it's our physical body that is the place, the thing that holds us back if we can just escape the physical body. Sadly, this. Teaching is still widely held in the Christian church that denies the truth of the resurrection of the body that we celebrate each Sunday, not just on Easter Sunday, by the way. We're celebrating the resurrection today, Palm Sunday, as well as Jared pointed out, and as we say most Sundays. That there is a bodily resurrection, in other words, what God created physically matters. Spiritually as well. Some other people were mixing together Jewish myth or stories along with Christianity. And this took the form, a dangerous form, that communicated that circumcision and various food laws and other practices were still applicable to the Christian church. And it's one of the primary subjects that Paul addresses in his letters in pointing out that those things all were intended to point to Christ and that those things have been done away with now. And to go back to those things is to enter into a state of slavery again. Slavery that doesn't look to Christ to free us From the power of sin and death, but that still depends on human works to justify us before God. But it was comfort food. It was comfort food for those who were in the audience in Ephesus, for those Jews who had grown up all their life knowing the scriptures and practicing these things. It was comfortable just to still depend on those practices of circumcision and of food laws, It felt good. It offered them some sense of normalcy. And perhaps even a numbing-like effect that calmed them, especially when faced with the prospect of persecution, even physical persecution, and suffering that came because of claiming The name of Christ in this Greco Roman and in Jewish communities. Do you see how that applies to us today? How we are always tempted to create syncretisms, just to blend in a little bit of our own philosophy or the philosophy that's taught in our school or in our classroom or in our college. Even when it stands against what Christ says, we we just blend it in and we mix it. And what we do ultimately is we create a new religion. And religion, religions are only as good as the source of the power of the religion. In most religions, that source of the power is internal. It's inside of us. They give us some type of motivation or teaching or wisdom that we can pursue. But in Christianity, that power is external. It is located in a very real God. In a very real Jesus Christ who is God who became human. And in very concrete teaching that has been revealed by God through his prophets and then by God by the word itself becoming flesh in Jesus Christ. And it depends it depends entirely on that external source, God Himself who really exists and how He has revealed Himself to us and described to us what His kingdom is, what His plan is, that He will come to judge the living and the dead, that His kingdom is promised on earth as it is in heaven, that is contained in what Paul calls, again in Acts 20, the whole counsel of God. God. The whole counsel of God. He charges the Ephesian elders, don't shy away from the whole counsel of God. In other words, all of God's revealed Word is the whole counsel of God. You can't cut things out. Famously, Thomas Jefferson took a Bible and he cut out all the miracles in the Bible. Physically, with a pair of scissors, cut them out and said, this is a good and helpful moral system. But I don't believe in the miracles. We can't cut things out, nor can we add things in. He says we have to, as teachers, commit ourselves to the whole counsel of God, or in this passage today, commit ourselves to all teaching at the end of verse 2. Complete teaching. Complete teaching or all teaching, all of God's teaching, but he doesn't leave all teaching alone, by the way. It's an interesting phrase at the end where he says, complete, teaching, pre- complete patience and teaching. The two seem to maybe not go together. It's even an awkward structure. The word in the Greek for complete is not necessarily a full thing, but just all. All patience, all teaching. And I think what he's getting at actually is leading with the patience. It's the word that comes first. With all patience. Did you catch what that is? Read the whole verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all patience and teaching. Now these words... They don't set well with us. I'm talking about reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Exhort is maybe a little bit foreign for many of us, a bit of a religious word. Exhort is just to give direction to, instruction, move people in a certain direction. We're, we're usually pretty comfortable with that if somebody exhorts us, directs us with strength towards something. But most of us, most of us bristle at the thought of somebody re. Proving us. In other words, correcting us, telling us we're wrong. Much less for that to step up a, a, a notch and that to actually become rebuke, a stronger correction. <laughs> what you are doing is wrong. You need to stop doing this now. Paul tells Timothy that people need to hear that. Much as a young child needs to be tell, told sometimes strongly stop! If you go out in that street, you will get hurt. In our parenting class right now, we've been talking about love and limits. The need to love children and teach them, but also the need to set limits on them. I remember being with a friend one time whose four-year-old son did not understand the concept of not going in the street. I mean, we were downtown San Diego. No one here, no one that anyone in here even knows, I'm pretty sure, we were unloading equipment and his son was just running in the street. He could not be there without without somebody physically holding him from running into a busy street. Now, I don't know if he had some type of disability or something that was preventing him or if the he just never was rebuked and reproved in the way that he needed to be to understand that there was great danger In that. But what Paul's telling Timothy to do is to rebuke people when it's appropriate, to reprove them when it's appropriate, that people need this type of thing, not always, but occasionally, and if they don't get it, they will metaphorically run out in front of cars. But. He says, you need to do it with all kinds of patience. Understanding that teaching oftentimes takes months, years, decades to really sink in. Understanding that people learn most by experience and less by words, again from the teaching that we've been doing, John Cox, brilliant, brilliant teacher, he says uh, the quote is quotes a, a psych, child psychologist says if a uh, um, if a picture is worth a thousand words, an experience is worth a thousand pictures. Most of us need to experience some significance in our lives before we realize why that teaching is important to us. It comes alive then. Oh, I realize now why God would want me to do that or not want me to do this. And so as teachers, we're called to patience, but the flip side of that is as people of God in the congregation, we have to be willing to be reproved, rebuked, and exhorted by those who are called to teach and shepherd us by God Himself, by Jesus Christ, by our pastor, by our elders. Because patience, that patience always has to come along with fullness of teaching. Not everything at once, not a fire hose, but the fullness of patience needs to be accompanied by the fullness of teaching in order for the Word of God to take effect in people's lives and in Jesus' church. And here's the thing, here's the tricky thing about being a pastor, is that you have to be ready in season and out of season. In other words, very literally, when it's convenient for you and when it's inconvenient for you. And I'll tell you that pastoring is oftentimes inconvenient. As chaplain of the police department, when I get a call on New Year's Day when I'm out, at the tide pools with my family and we only have one car and I find out that I need to go in because an officer committed suicide, that is inconvenient for me. But probably the most valuable five hours of ministry I've had in five years. Likewise, a few weeks ago, I got a call on Saturday night as I was preparing or finishing my preparation for my sermon on Sunday morning at 7 o'clock, that there was another incident that I needed to respond to. Don't be afraid, as people, to call me at inconvenient times because it's part of my call that it would happen in season or out of season, when it's convenient for me, when it's inconvenient. Pastors are to be ready for that. But pastors also have to be aware that they need to set some limits and understand that there are certain things that need to be done. I still remember vividly a story that one pastor and professor at uh, at, uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, where we considered going to seminary, or I considered going to seminary rather than covenant, where I ended up in St. Louis, told me we were talking about a, a pastor who had somebody in the congregation and they had him over for lunch. And they were just one of those people who talk a lot. And they went on and on. And there wasn't a break in the conversation. They couldn't interject. And they knew that their kids were kind of wandering around the house. And, and eventually, right at the last minute, he said, i got to go check on the kids. And he went out and he found his four-year-old kid in the pool about to go underwater and drown. Saved in the nick of time. And I bring that story up just so that we are aware that there are still limits to what a pastor can do and important callings that we can't neglect some for the sake of others. And so shepherds are called to go after the lost sheep, but they're also called to tend to those who are still in the fold. And we don't sacrifice our family. We sacrifice ourselves. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul says. Paul recognized that there was some benefit to him being single and not having a family. He was able to pour himself out. But as a a pastor who has charge over a family, we're also called to shepherd them as well. To teach them, to give ourselves to them, to suffer on their behalf. I want to draw this to a close and it's tough and to bring this to an application because on the one hand it seems like Paul is telling Timothy you, you remember that, that, that picture I used to see it all the time but I don't see it anymore maybe it's just that I'm not in offices remember that picture of the, of the crane or the heron with a frog in its mouth and the advice is never give up <laughs> to the frog never give up <laughs> Never give up. Is that what Paul is telling Timothy? Never give up. It may seem like you're about to be swallowed whole and dead. Paul is about to be swallowed whole and die. Never give up. Is, 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 that, is that it? And in some senses, I think the answer is yes. Be encouraged that God has called you to do difficult things and tough things. Be aware of your temptation to do those things for your own glory. The temptation to sacrifice all kinds of other people around you for the sake of yourself and even sometimes we think we're doing it for the sake of others. But I think most importantly is to be encouraged that we have somebody who's done this for us. And that is Jesus Christ, God himself, who has come and suffered on our behalf and poured himself out as that drink offering. That we have others who have followed in that, in the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Timothy and many pastors and elders and many parents and mentors who have gone before us and poured into us. be encouraged that we're not the first ones to be asked to do this, to not shy away from suffering, but when we face suffering, not just pray that God would deliver us from the suffering, but more importantly, that God would give us patience and strength to endure the suffering. Because we know, like he says in his letter to the church in Rome, before he's in prison there And so suffering has meaning, though we may not know what it is. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and that hope gives us fuel for evangelism. Why why do you have hope in life? Why do you go on living? I suspect that most of us are asking that question, some of the time we can't really give an answer. But when we're sure of that hope, which a lot of times is produced by the suffering it overflows into us telling other people about why we have that hope. Do the work of an evangelist. You see, it's not just the pastor, it's all of us who are evangelists in various ways who are called to give testimony of why we have hope, and it's because of Jesus' suffering on our behalf. It has meaning. It's rooted deeply in relationship. The end of Paul's letter to Timothy is Paul saying, will you come and be by my side? I need you. But before you go, make sure you set these things in order because the significance of Jesus Christ and the whole counsel of what he's done and who he is is the most important thing we have in life. We can't abandon it and tell ourselves stories or numb ourselves and truly find hope in life. It can't happen. But with Jesus, our suffering has meaning and ends in hope. Let's pray. Jesus, many of us are in places of pain and suffering. And still others have numbed our pain and suffering in a way that we pretend that it doesn't exist. We feel the significance of brokenness in our own lives and in relationships. And we ask you to bring hope and to strengthen us to be sober minded to endure suffering, to do the work of an evangelist and to fulfill the service, the ministry that you have called each of us to. Help us to see that as your kingdom work and find joy as we do it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.